You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Stacey Schiff. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Stacey Schiff, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author of biographies of Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, Benjamin Franklin, and Cleopatra is known for revealing the human side of people overlaid by popular mythologies. Her most recent book takes on the enduring fictions of one of the most confounding and hysterical events in American history, the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Fourteen women, five men, and two dogs were executed for witchcraft by the Massachusetts Bay Colony in a panic that spread like wildfire for nine months. Neighbors eyed neighbors with suspicion. Children accused their parents of signing satanic pacts. Some 700 witches were reported to be flying through the air. The Salem Witch Hunt has been revised and reinterpreted and reduced to a cautionary tale about religious extremism or paranoia. Stacey Schiff's fastidiously researched book, The Witches, Salem, 1692, presents a much more complex picture, and she joined me to talk about it on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. So there have been hundreds of books, one one very well-known play, some ballets, academic theses, and countless invocations of the Salem Witch Trials. What were you hoping to add with your book? First of all, I think we come to the trials with a fairly fictionalized sense, thanks to Arthur Miller and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I wanted to get back to the truth, but I think a lot of the books on the shelf um, were thesis-driven and make the Puritans into something rather cardboardy. And I wanted to see if I could get into the minds of these people. How had this happened? What were they thinking? What were they fearing? What was the texture of their lives really like? And tell us a little bit about that texture. You set the scene in Salem, really two Salems, uh, in 1692, something I didn't know, as a dark and isolated place. Tell us about that place. Well, you're talking about um, what is really the frontier at this point. In 1692, um, we're talking about small, rural, very isolated farming communities. Um, in the case of Salem Village, where the witchcraft breaks out, you have a community of about 550 people. And, um, and just to add to the confusion, there are two Salems. There's Salem Town, which is one of the oldest settlements in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is a much more refined, much richer um, city, really, by comparison. And Salem Town is the rural, somewhat contentious bunch of villagers, a bunch of farmers who have decamped to a place where, the, where they can farm the land and who are constantly um, at odds with the Salem townspeople. But you're really talking about communities um, very much still under siege by Native American, by Indian attack, and um, very much feeling as if they are menaced by their environment, by the weather. Um, they're farming really at subsistence levels. And there are a lot of howling wolves in the distance. You really can't read a 17th century diary without hearing about the howling wolves. We have this image of the Puritans as being so devout, but you also present them as a very superstitious lot where magic and science and religion are all really mixed together. How did that manifest? 
there's really a sort of wonderful contradiction there, isn't it? They're um, very, very able to quote from scripture. I mean, it's really great you get you know, two farmers having an argument and they're quoting scripture at each other as they argue over their fences. Um, but you also have a lot of um, folk remedies and horseshoes nailed to doors and people div divining futures with all sorts. I mean, the way we would today use a Ouija board or a horoscope. Um, which seems to coexist um, with that religion. A lot of that work has been done by, by David Hall at Harvard Divinity School, and he's really charted these two really sort of intertwined traditions. They were also awaiting a new charter from England. There, so there was government, but no government, I think somebody uh, you quote in your book. And how does that uncertainty contribute to setting these trials in motion? You know, I can't, um, I can't really overstress the politics here. In 1689, um, I think unbeknownst to most of us, there's a coup against the royal governor. And the very feisty Massachusetts settlers essentially send the governor to prison and then sailing back to England. Um, and then, of course, are left without really an established government of their own. At this point, they have no charter, and they're operating um, really as kind of obstreperous children um, toward the mother country. They're somewhat unmoored from the, the mother country. And by 1692, they're wondering um, what to expect. Are they, going to be, are they going to be chastised for their bad behavior? Are they going to get a charter that returns to them their original rights? Are they going to be um, penalized in some way for their rather rebellious nature? And one of the problems with the witchcraft is that there is no government in place to deal with it initially, not until the summer, until May, does that charter return. But much earlier in the year, I think it is in January, that two young girls show signs, mysterious signs of affliction. Who were they and what were those signs? The witchcraft um, breaks out in the home of the Salem Village minister, um, Samuel Paris, and his nine-year-old daughter and his 11-year-old niece um, will start to writhe and convulse and twitch. Um, they hide under the furniture. One of them dives halfway down a well. They try to fly across the room. Um, they have sort of terrible paroxysms. They begin to interrupt ministers in the meeting house and, and, and fall into trances, really. And, and this behavior, for the most part, although Paris does not jump to this conclusion prematurely, these symptoms correspond to what, in the 17th century, was understood to be witchcraft. So although no one immediately says, oh, we know what this is, it's witchcraft, within a number of weeks... Um, it is pretty much everyone's opinion that the girls are bewitched. The source must be diabolical. The source must be diabolical. You have to admit it's a really great solution because it covers pretty much the entire gamut of symptoms, right? Eventually that grows to eight girl accusers, at least initially. So what was it like to be a girl in Salem in 1692? You know, that is a question I spent a long time trying to answer. And one of the frustrations with this book is that we have no diary, we have no pages, we have no voice for any one of these girls. No Puritan woman has left us a diary from these years. So we're left to reconstruct um, the strains on their lives and the concerns the girls have, strangely enough, from the conversations that some of the bewitched girls will claim they had with the devil, where the devil will promise them relief from their chores, or the devil will promise them splendid clothing. Um, so it, it gives you a sense of what they're dreaming of to an extent and what they're having nightmares about. And there are a number of other teenaged girls in 17th century America. And here I'm thinking about the witchcraft judge Samuel Sewell's 15-year-old daughter, um, who, who's not bewitched, 
But at about the same time, a few years later, will um, at 15 have essentially what we would consider almost a nervous breakdown. She's convinced um, at 15 that she has already sinned so badly and so often that there is no hope for her salvation and that she's a reprobate. Um, and she'll, she can't stop crying, essentially. And interestingly, this is a couple of years after the witch trials, she'll be shipped off from her home in Boston to recover in Salem, of all places. <laughs> um, but, but you can hear in her, in her agony there um, something of the religious stress that's going on here as well. You're listening to my conversation with Stacey Schiff for Writers on a New England Stage. Her most recent book is called The Witches, Salem, 1692, which provides historical context and research into what led to one of the most hysterical and confounding chapters of American history, the Salem Witch Trials. But, you know, I remember reading this book. I started it this summer, and I was with a couple of teenage girls and talking to their mother about, well, they don't want to do anything. They're slovenly. They're sullen. They make up things, they throw fits, and she was like, yeah, adolescent girls. I have, can't have any, I have no experience of that personally, as the mother of two daughters, one of whom is in the audience tonight. Um, She's absolutely lovely, I assure you. Right now. Um, um, there, I, you know, there, there is such a tremendous, um, we look at this, and, we th- and, and I think it's very easy to say, they're a bunch of bratty teenagers. Um, they can't seem to distinguish the real from the unreal, from the natural from the supernatural. They seem to think that, that shape-shifting is possible. But that's what being a teenager is, we think. That was not entirely clear, um, obviously, to the 17th century mind. And a lot of these symptoms, I think, are the kind of symptoms that would indeed make you think something unnatural was at work. From the description of the Paris household, for example, there's screaming going on that you can hear from down the road. That's rather abnormal behavior, even for, even for your basic American teenager, right? Um, so there's, there's certainly a, you know, something here about that liminal, sexualized teenage state, but I think there's also, there's clearly some, some mental illness at work. But these girls and those paroxysms and actions carried a lot of weight inside of this community. And the first three women who were said to be witches, kind of easy marks, uh, I guess. And then Governor Phipps, he convenes a court in May. I just want to make That's sure. Right. End of May. Right. Now, what were the accused said to have done? Oh, they had done marvelous things. They had bewitched cows. They had made kettles dance. They had hidden brooms in apple trees. They had created holes which carts could disappear into, but then disappeared minutes later. They had transformed themselves into cats and jumped through windows. Um, they had tried to wring the necks of men while they slept. Um, they had, which I, makes perfect sense to me, right? Um, they had cursed oxen. They had caused children to be deformed and to die. There's a lot of putting a spell on other people's children here. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything that you can think of, actually, goes on that list. But the long, there's, there's a long litany of grievances here. And many of them, interestingly, are not new charges. They are recycled charges. A lot of these suspects have either been accused of witchcraft earlier, um, maybe 10 years earlier, maybe a generation earlier, and they're back in court to answer to offenses which are decades old. No one in Puritan New England seemed to forget a thing. Bridget Bishop was one of those. She was the first who was arraigned, and she was said to have had the habit of hopping around young men's bedrooms, incapacitating them and striking them dumb. I love that. I love that because 
you know, there are two things about that that I love. One is just, it's so great. And they can always describe what she's wearing, which, you know, does indicate that they were paying attention to Bridget Bishop. Um, the other thing I like about that is that if you read the civil court records, not the witchcraft courts, um, you see an enormous number of women who are assaulted in their beds by men or who climb into bed in the middle of the night when it's exceedingly dark and they discover a strange man there. But when it comes to witchcraft, it's always the men who are complaining about women visiting them in their beds. It's mm -hmm. really interesting. No woman ever says, I was assaulted in my bedroom by a witch. Well, what role does female sexuality or even eroticism play in these accusations? It's hard to say to some extent. I would say, you know, what about adolescent life is not eroticized, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here. We have, nothing, we have no sense of any of these girls having been sexually assaulted, sexually abused, specifically. A lot of the imagery is, however, very sexual. And obviously a lot of the idea that a woman has come into your room and assaulted you in bed would indicate that there was some kind of provocative behavior in any case. And when you think about um, just the image of a bewitched girl, um, and in, in the 17th century when someone was ill, you obviously came to the bedside. You have a bewitched girl who's writhing in bed, scantily clad, and you have a number of men gathered around the bedside. There's something slightly titillating about that. There's one remarkable moment in, in a later witchcraft case in 1693 when Another girl is bewitched. This is after the trials, obviously. And the girl will dismiss all the women around the bed, but she'll ask the men to stay. Mm. Just saying. <laughs> I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Stacey Schiff, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. In her most recent book, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer takes on what she calls America's first true crime story, the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Unlike many books, plays, and studies of those nine months of fury in colonial America, Schiff does not judge the Puritans for their paranoia. She presents the perilous environment, the neighborly grudges, and relentless and rigid belief system that aided and abetted certainly the most well-known and among the most notorious subversions of justice in American history. Let's pick up my conversation with Stacey Schiff about The Witches, Salem 1692, which included questions submitted by the audience at the Music Hall. Well, it's so interesting that you wrote this book after writing about Cleopatra, you know, powerful, masterfully strategic, influential, and women's roles, and of course it isn't just women who are accused of witchcraft in Salem in 1692, but their roles are so very different in the community, and I'm wondering about that transition for you, finding out about these women. Well, there, there was a, a definite, um, I thought anyway at the time, when it seemed like a good idea, a, a logical leap from... Cleopatra, women's voices, which were very pronounced in Hellenistic times, to this moment where women are on the one hand driving the narrative forward and really calling the shots, um, and yet can't speak. I mean, whatever it is that afflicts these little girls, they're trying to say something they obviously can't articulate. So there was a lot of thinking there about why do women's voices annoy or why did they unsettle so much? How, how and when are women allowed to carry a story? I mean, one of the interesting things with Salem is that the girls, many of the bewitched girls, not 
the first two, in fact, um, will become almost advisors to the court. The court will appeal to them, you know, could you explain to us how this witchcraft thing works? Mm -hmm. Could you explain spectral evidence, which is evidence that only a bewitched person can actually observe? Um, they're treated as visionaries in a way. And that's a really, that's an astonishing uh, turning of the tables to have these male authorities appealing um, to underage girls for wisdom. But you mentioned earlier that they didn't leave diaries behind. You don't know about the inner life of a Puritan woman or a girl. What, what is the difference in the research and the access to figuring out what was going on with a person for Cleopatra, for example, uh, or, or Vera Nabokov and, and this book? I just wish people would keep diaries, what, or blogs, anything. Um, you know, you go where the material will take you. And in this case, um, for example, we have the hearing papers, but we don't have the court papers. So if you really looked at the book closely, you'd notice we spend a lot more time in the hearing room than we do in the courtroom, because of course we can't document um, the courtroom. Something I learned with this book that almost surprised me is that it's easier to penetrate international politics. It was easier to figure out what Cleopatra was planning and her strategy than it is to penetrate local gossip. Mm. Um, so much of what drives the Salem tragedy forward are these you know, age-old sort of calcified antipathies and these long-standing feuds. And some of them are recorded in earlier court cases. Some of them, we don't know why some of these people are accused. We don't know why fingers are pointed at at various ministers, for example. Um, and that's something that clearly everyone in the community would have known, but is lost to us. And that's infuriating to an historian. And also, you're not looking at just the life of one character, but I think there are six pages in this book. Of, oh, don't say that, you're gonna scare everybody. <laughs> but there are so many, it's so interesting. And for you to, as a biographer, to be covering the lives of so many. What was that process like? Well, you know, it becomes, it becomes almost a choral arrangement. Um, and I enjoyed that because the biographer's life, I don't mean to de-romanticize it for anyone out there, but um, you're alone with one person for a long time. It's a long haul, and it's a fairly intense relationship. And one of the beauties of this is that you do have um, a number of different perspectives, and you're in the minds of a lot of people. And this is a fairly um, insular world. So being able to move among the different households and among the very many agendas was, was really utterly fascinating to me. One of the mysteries of Salem is that, or one of the thrills to me about Salem, is that everyone has an agenda. It just isn't the stated agenda. And it takes a while for those hidden agendas to emerge. And that's true of the girls, it's true of the villagers, it's true of the ministers, and it's certainly true of the civic authorities. Well, you, you're a biographer who's known for putting flesh and feeling uh, on your subjects. And I'm wondering how it felt for you to stand inside of that, stand inside of the lives of the accused. Oh, it was not good. It was yeah. not good. It was a messy, yeah. It, you know, it, four and a half years of Puritan sermons is not, <laughs> is not highly recommended. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's a very anxious time, as is ours. And there were times where I wasn't sure if I was responding to our world or the other world because I seemed to be living more in the other world, which I suppose is what you, do, what you hope to do. Um, but that general sense, first of all, of injustice um, is very wearing. And I have to say that writing the hanging scenes, for example, was among the hardest things I've ever done. I, I, I kept thinking to myself, I've never hung, I've never had to hang anyone before. Um, it's pretty grisly, as is 
watching innocent people unable to defend themselves. I mean, there are moments in this book, um, one, one woman plaintively, for example, in her hearing, um, says, I'm not a witch, I, I don't even know what a witch is, to which the justice before whom she's testifying says, how then do you know you're not a witch if you don't know what one is? And you know that those moments of just being caught in this sort of Kafkaesque situation um, are fairly sobering. You say Kafkaesque; it made me think of the Monty Python witch scenes, <laughs> yes, you know, in a yes. couple of cases. And you know, there are these stories of the devil tempting them with finery and ribbons and French fall shoes, which probably would have turned my head as that well. That was a boy. Interestingly, I know, isn't was that, that great? Yeah, that was a strange detail. But none of them ever produced these goods in the same way that. They put them in prison, and, and if they could turn into cats and yellow birds and ride on rods. I mean, there's, there doesn't seem to be any logic thinking about, well, if they are indeed witches, they could get away. Yeah, one of, the, one of the, those bits of logic for me comes up with the dogs. The first line of the book is that 14 women, five men, and two dogs are executed at Salem. And of course, everyone wants to know about the dogs. And I can't really answer that question because I don't know what breed or color they were, but they were killed because they are thought to be diabolical accomplices. And, and in fact, one of the girls says that every time the dog looks at her, um, she starts to writhe and, and fall into paroxysms. And Increase Mather, the most eminent of Massachusetts ministers, will later say of the dogs, um, they couldn't have been diabolical. Those couldn't have been devils because if they were devils, one wouldn't have been able to shoot them. So there's a lot of illogic to this. It's the old, if the witch sinks, then she's innocent, yes. and if she floats, she's guilty, <laughs> right? Exactly. You're listening to my conversation with Stacey Schiff for Writers on a New England Stage. Her most recent book is called The Witches, Salem, 1692, which provides historical context and research into what led to one of the most hysterical and confounding chapters of American history, the Salem Witch Trials. Well, the, the chaos in the courtroom is just fascinating uh, in the arraignments and the civil trials, too. Ghosts flying around, blood streaming from the mouth of, who was it, Mary Warren, bite marks on people's arms appearing. An accused woman admits to flying around on a broomstick and crashing. What did you think reading these just fabulous accounts? Well, the broomstick... It's not a broomstick, alas. Uh, Although I want, I so wanted it to be a broomstick. It's a pole. Yes, they call them poles. It's a stick or a pole. I know, I hate that. It should be a broomstick. And, and it's even worse than that. I'm going to admit something. It's not even at night. It's during the day. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and it was the first page of the book, and I had to go with it's daylight. I mean, that's just a downer. Um, the broomstick, the non-broomstick, the pole crash was my favorite because this is a woman. It's, her name is Ann Foster, and she's a farm woman from Andover in her 70s. And again, we don't know why she's named, except that her name would have been in the, in the headlines, so to speak, in the oral headlines, because her daughter had been savagely murdered. It's the first murder trial in New England. So even in Salem, and the Salem Village girls are the accusers here, they would have known of her. They've never met her, and yet they accuse this woman of witchcraft, but probably they had heard her name in connection with her daughter's murder. Ann Foster, when um, she's arraigned, will confess, although over a number of different hearings, she will confess more and more. And after she has finally confessed that indeed she has flown from Andover to Salem on her stick during the day, and with bread and cheese in her pocket, on her way to a diabolical Sabbath with a neighbor on the stick, she will also say they crashed on the way. And I, I guess I always on some level knew that had to be the first page of the book. 
Um, because it, what does it say that she not only was able to confess to this, I'm assuming fictional um, encounter, but, but that, there's always that possibility, you know, but that she had an aerial crash, and moreover, she was still in pain from it. I mean, she, she's clearly be believed her own story. This is not an adolescent girl, this is a grown woman. She's believed her own story and she's elaborated on it. And, and it just tells you something about how desperate um, these the, the suspects were to please the men before whom they are being deposed. Well, I was gonna ask you that. Why, more than 50 people confessed. Why did they confess? There are a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, um, you could save your life after a certain point in the summer. One of the oddities of Salem is that um, those people who are noble and straight-spined and defiant and refuse to admit to witchcraft are the people who hang. And anyone who confesses goes back to prison. And at a certain point, people begin to realize this. Um, secondly, you're standing before the most eminent men in the colony, and they have convinced you um, that you are a witch. Um, there's a wonderful, horrible case of a young girl being taken to prison, and on one side of her is riding her brother, she's 17, and on the other side of her is riding her minister. And they're both saying to her, when we get there, remember, you're a witch, confess. And she's saying, I'm not a witch. And they're both telling her she's a witch. And of course, when she gets there, she confesses. Mm. So the pressure here is enormous. What was considered to be proof of witchcraft? A confession was the best, mm -hmm. was the gold standard. Um, there's an idea that a, a witch is someone who has entered into a pact with the devil. And that pact confers on him or her unnatural powers to work diabolical acts. But also, because of that pact, the witch has on his or her body some kind of blemish or mark, which is, a diabolic, which, is, which is proof of the diabolical pact. So there's a certain amount of examining the bodies of suspects to locate that, that flea bite, that mole, that scar, whatever <laughs> it is, which most of us would be able to find if we were to look. There are almost no lawyers in America at this point. And, um, it, in court at the time, a suspect had no right to, be, to have any counsel in any case. Um, they had to prove the truth, of the truth of the charges, but remember that the justices have on their side spectral evidence, which is to say evidence to which only the bewitched were, was privy. So if the bewitched girl says, I can see the devil whispering in Virginia's ear right now, the justice is likely to believe her and say then the girl who's telling the truth because she's got this supernatural vision, then clearly Virginia is in cahoots with the devil. In which case, you were toast. Well, this of course was all compounded by this conception of community that the Puritans had, that they were, you know, everybody was in everyone's business, right? I think you call the uh, Puritan calendar the most boring in the Western world. I was, I was quoting, but yes, it's been described by someone else as the dullest in civilization, yes. No holidays, no saints days, no holidays, no Christmas, no, and pretty much constant chore. I mean, everyone is working all the time, which is interestingly, one of the reasons why women are so crucial is that the labor is infinite and the workforce is fairly small, which is always a situation that favors women, obviously, because it's all hands on deck. And yes, it's a fairly um, monotonous existence certainly for a young girl. How many of those who were accusers were servants? It's more than half. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting practice among um, New Englanders at the time, which was that you sent your child elsewhere to be brought up and educated, because it was thought that other people could perhaps encourage better manners. 
Um, it's just, we think that's why. We're not actually entirely certain why these children are bound out, as it's called. So almost none of them is living in, in the home um, of his or her parents, except for the girl at the parsonage. And many of them are servants in other people's homes. Um, interestingly, very few of them um, are living with their biological fathers. So was this drama, was this theater for them? The trials? Yes. It's really good theater. I mean, how do you resist demonic talking cats? It, it, it's, it's good theater. I mean, it, it, there is something inherently fascinating, as with us, who don't even think of it as a religious construct, with witchcraft. It was an extremely compelling way to purify a community and to be able to air grievances and um, antipathies that you really hadn't been able to articulate for a long time. Everyone's also terrified. Um, and of course, if it's easier to accuse than it is to be accused, um, there's a reason for many people to jump into the, the act here. I think it's important for us to realize that most, almost everyone believes witchcraft is at work. And even the accused in prison um, believe witchcraft is at work. They just think they're not the ones responsible. And an interesting thing that will be clear when the trials end finally, nine months after the first afflictions, is that the belief that an injustice has occurred is almost universal, but the belief in witchcraft persists. Many people simply feel they've executed the wrong witches, or the wrong people as witches, and that they've let the guilty walk free. When you were looking at these records and imagining their lives, did you ever think, what if I were accused? What would I do? Would I... You know, I think that's the, one of the inherent fascinations of the subject is, what if the knock comes at your door? Right. Um, because, the, because of the seeming randomness of the accusation and because of the fact that once you are, um, once you are accused, there is really no way out. I mean, we're talking about a 100% conviction rate, which is something that has never before happened in any witch trial. Um, and, and it's interesting because prior to 1692, witchcraft is usually treated with a certain degree of leniency. There have been about 100 witchcraft accusations. Massachusetts has hanged six witches before 1692, but the court tended toward leniency. Um, my favorite is a case of a woman who accuses her neighbor of witchcraft, and the judge asks her, um, in what shape did she appear to you? And the woman says, as a bear. And she says, as a, as a diabolical bear. And the judge asks, what kind of tail did the bear have? And the woman says, the, the bear was facing the other way. And the judge, judge says, bears don't have tails, and dismisses the case. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the, the seriousness with which, with which witchcraft was often approached. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Stacey Schiff, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. The Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer joined us to talk about The Witches, Salem 1692, a riveting narrative of the abject insanity that tore through the heart of a fledgling nation. What discomfited those who survived the ordeal was not the cunning practice of witchcraft, writes Schiff, but the clumsy administration of justice. To this day, we look back at that frenzied time as ancient history with disbelief and scorn. 
But Schiff reminds us of how the apocalyptic, absolutist, puritanical strain endures in our thinking and our politics and our fear of outsiders and search for scapegoats. Let's pick up my conversation with Stacey Schiff from Writers on a New England Stage. You didn't go into this book with a theory, but you looked at several different theories. Um, and one, the theory of ergotism, how did that affect your point of view? And I believe that is when there's fungus on the grain, it creates a hallucinogenic-like effect. Exactly. So everyone I mean, is tripping their brains out. You know, that's what's great when you read the witchcraft testimony and the flights through the air and the satanic cats and the translucent cats and the killer cats. You do think this is like one low-grade acid trip all around. Um, the ergot theory is really interesting, and it was a very elegant theory, um, which the idea was that the, the rye supply had been, was had fermented. And evidently, and I'm not basing this on first-hand knowledge, when that happens, you can hallucinate when you've ingested the grain. Um, the theory was debunked, unfortunately, because it really would have explained a lot. Um, because it doesn't explain why the girls were afflicted sometimes, but not other times. Mm. And it is interesting. Um, people will notice that they are often more afflicted when they're asked to do their chores. Um, they're often more afflicted when there are visitors. They're more afflicted when their mother scowls at them. No one, I'm sure, has ever had that experience. Um, there, there's, a, there's a rhythm to the, to the disorder here. And also, it doesn't. not everyone in every household is affected. So for example, in the parsonage, in Salem Village, um, you have these two afflicted girls, but there are three unaffected children. So the, so for, and also apparently the time of year doesn't correspond to when this could have happened. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a great theory. It would explain a lot. It would explain a great deal. <laughs> well, there are so many interesting theories. Um, conversion disorder, of course, being one of them. Uh, that there was a mini ice age at that time, and the weather was just unbearably cold, and economic theories. And, and I wondered if going into this without the idea of trying to solve it what was that like for you? I mean, is it hard to be uncertain? You, one might want to solve it, right? I think, I, I, I like to think that I did solve it, uh, or that, that I did explain it in right. any case, and that the explanation um, is, is multifaceted. So I, I can't say I don't attempt to explain it. The explanation is all there at the end, um, although there are clues planted throughout. Um, but I always go into something with, a, with as open a mind as I can. I, and, and this is true of whether I'm writing history or biography. I, I think the idea is that you want to be able to hear the evidence and, and let the material speak to you as opposed to you imposing your ideas on it. Can you talk about where and how you did your research? Oh, I'd love to. How much more time do we have? <laughs> um, I spent about three years on the research, I'd say. The book took four and a half years in all. I, about three of those years were, were research. The witchcraft papers what remains of the witchcraft papers are all are at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. And um, I started with those, reading them more or less cold, and then of course I went back to them once I had done some more research. I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time at the Massachusetts Historical Society, the Danvers Archive in Andover, which has a terrific archive, um, at the American Antiquarian Society, which has a great deal of Cotton Mather's papers. The secondary material is vast, and I, and I read as much of it as I could, especially if you were, if I was writing about one of the ancillary characters, about Governor Phipps, for example, I read a lot of the secondary stuff. Anything that a 17th century Massachusetts resident wrote in terms of diaries or letters, I feel I read, and I read that 
mountain of Puritan sermons, and I read um, as much as I could find in terms of the Mathers as I could, because they are so much at the center of the yeah, story. Yeah, let's talk about them. It's yes, because you cannot read all of that. Right. No. <laughs> well, Cotton Mather was quite prolific. The Joyce Carol Oates of the day, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was convinced that the devil was lurking in the wilderness, and, and, and for him, these trials and these accusations of witchcraft and the presence of witchcraft proved how pious they were. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's this wonderful strain of, of American exceptionalism here. We are the chosen people. And um, from the Mather's point of view in particular, and, and it's, I don't mean to overstate his responsibility, but he, he does set the tone both um, before and after the trials. The idea that the, that the devil has to touch down in Massachusetts is a badge of honor. It's proof that um, we are the most pious community. Where will the devil um, arrive? But there where he has hated most is Mather's reasoning. And moreover, um, the ministry has very busily been predicting the second coming for years and giving an exact date for its arrival. This diabolical invasion is proof that they were right because the, the fiends, the descent of these fiends, is proof that the second coming is in the offing. So evangelically speaking, um, the witchcraft really works, so to speak, for Cotton Mather. It makes a lot of sense. And even after the trials, um, when it is not really very politic to say so, he will write privately. He, he really thinks a lot has been gained by the witchcraft. It's an extraordinary statement. Um, he will basically say this, the witchcraft has revived a younger generation. It has restored um, New England spirituality. It has filled the pews. And it hasn't cost us anything, neglecting the 20 innocent people <laughs> and two dogs who died in the process. What, what happened to the naysayers and the skeptics? Where were they? That, that's a really great question. Where were they? Um, because they don't come out of the woodwork until late in the summer. And actually, I can sort of answer your question. Anyone who expressed any degree of skepticism um, earlier on wound up accused of witchcraft in court. Um, and that would, it seems to have been the reason why John Proctor, whom Arthur Miller will, will use, winds up in court, because he's basically said, um, if you would just thrash these girls, they would stop telling these tall tales. And the next thing you know, he's been, he and his wife have both been accused of witchcraft. By the end of the summer, and very tentatively, you begin to hear notes of opposition. And, and, and what's interesting with, here is who the heroes turn out to be, who the people who finally stand up and say, uh, while everyone else seems to be losing um, his or her head, wait a minute this has to stop, or where are we going with this? And it's, at that point, it's, it's verging on sedition to be able to question these trials because so much is invested in them. How did the justices shield themselves from prosecution or, let's say, uh, the public opinion of having sent all these innocent people to death? Astonishingly and, um, and really inexplicably, Everyone involved in the trials will go on to serve in the next Massachusetts administrations. There is no, there is no outcry. <laughs> I know, I know. It's how times have changed. Um, there's, there is no, um, there's no retribution. They remain extremely popular. The Chief Justice will go on to become the governor of Massachusetts of the, of the Bay Colony. He will go to his death. It's William Stoughton. He will. He will go to his death without a word about, of regret or even of mention, as far as we know, of the trials. 
all of these men, they don't even have to be rehabilitated, they just continue to serve. Only one of the witchcraft judges, in, in, so far as we know, Samuel Sewell, will apologize. And was ostracized for it. I'm not sure if he's ostracized. It, Stoughton, for example, disapproves because he realizes that it's better just not to mention it and, and to sweep it under the carpet. There's, that, there's an absolute across-the-board sweeping under the carpet afterwards. That's the one place where brooms get used by the men here <laughs> to sweep this under the carpet. And, and it's remarkable when you, and frustrating in that the sermons of 1692 from one of the most moderate ministers in Boston, for example, missing. Um, the year 1692 from some of the best diaries, from some of the most specific diaries, missing. Um, the letters of one of the witchcraft justices, Wade Still Winthrop, um, extremely good collection of letters. There's no 1692. It almost feels conspiratorial that the year is just, it disappears. Um, there is restitution afterwards. A court is, uh, a commission is formed in 1710 um, when finally people have said, we really got to do something here. People are really still suffering. And that sense of unfinished business is largely lost to us because of this silence. But in 1710, a commission is formed to somehow pay back families for what they've lost, for lost lives, for lost property. Um, and what's interesting about it is that some of the people who've um, confessed or accused their spouses are very well compensated. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily calm everything. You're listening to my conversation with Stacey Schiff for Writers on a New England Stage. Her most recent book is called The Witches, Salem, 1692, which provides historical context and research into what led to one of the most hysterical and confounding chapters of American history, the Salem Witch Trials. How about these families that were broken up by this? You know, uh, there, were, there were children who had their parents, or their mothers anyway, sent to death. It's interesting, it's always the mothers, isn't huh. it? Um, yes, was a father ever accused uh, by Yes, a uh, Abigail Hobbs will accuse both by parents, yes. Mm -hmm. The only, th I think, everything, every, there's every possible combination of accusation, except that a wife never accuses a husband. A lot of husbands, as soon as a wife is accused, a lot of husbands will say, always thought she was a witch. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I should say there's precedent for that. That had happened in Massachusetts before. Um, but you had an earlier part of the question, which was, okay, I I, we don't know how normalcy returns when you had to go back to living with the daughter who had accused you. I mean, how did you go back to a household right. where, your, where your children had accused you or sit in the in meeting when your minister had accused you, or for that matter, when you had accused your minister. There's an interesting phenomenon which, in which afterwards, um, family mem families who have lost members to the witchcraft, um, widows and widowers, will often marry. And I don't know if that's because um, they had suffered a similar trauma or if it's because no one else would go near them, because of course, many people believe these, even afterwards, believed that these accusations had been true. Despite all these attempts to explain this story or to better understand it that have gone on throughout history, we've repeated the witch hunt over and over again. It did not prevent the future witch hunt. Or do you think that term is so too often used? Well, no, I'm particularly partial to that term these days. Um, no, I think, I think that several things. I think piling on is, I'm sorry to say, a fairly human a fairly common instinct. Um, I think the internet has made it all the more possible. 
Um, and I think there's a lot here um, that we can really, that we really respond to in terms of wanting to name a responsible party, whether that's truly the culprit or not, being able to assign blame um, is, is very appealing. I know that it hasn't only happened in America, but this is a very American story, something that stained the national psyche in some way. Do you think it is particular to the American story or sense of self? I think that idea that, um, no, there have been far worse witchcraft trials in, in earlier years on the continent and in England. I think the reason it startles us um, is to some extent because we think of ourselves as different or better than that. We think this is an enlightened society. These were extremely erudite men. And that's what's interesting too here is that the, the most erudite members of the society are leading this crusade. Mm -hmm. um, we expect more of our Puritan forefathers and this is not the part of them that we like really to think about. They take quite a hit for this, um, historically speaking. I mean, we, we almost remember nothing else about them except the fact that they erroneously burned witches, which of mm -hmm. course they didn't do. Despite the fact that, uh, for example, Cotton Mather went on to champion inoculation against smallpox. I always, I always read in that, and it, it's, it's later, it's in the, in the 1700s, Cotton Mather will be the lone sane voice for inoculation when there is a smallpox epidemic in Boston. And this is a man who's been obsessed with the invisible world, which is one of the reasons why he's um, so interested in witchcraft. And finally, he's found an invisible world. He's, he's understood germ theory to some extent. And I've always taken that on some level to be some version of an apology or some version of a concession. He takes this immensely unpopular stand and pays a terrible price for it. He's pilloried because um, to the early 18th century mind, the idea of vaccination was as crazy and outlandish as was the idea of witchcraft. Mm. And it wasn't until, what, 313 years later that Salem, the town, acknowledged with a memorial, a statue, the witches, the victims. It's, again, it's very, it takes a very long time um, to come out from under the spell to be able to talk about this without somehow feeling as if this is just the recent unpleasantness, as if this is something that perhaps should not be discussed. And Richard, Tra Richard Trask, who's the Danvers, now Salem Village, today's town archivist, has said that even in the 70s when he was excavating Parsonage where this began, um, there were a couple of sisters who lived across the road and they would shake their fists at him saying, why do you have to unearth that? We don't want to hear about it anymore. So there's a, you know, there was really this, you know, just this sense that it's perhaps better left unspoken. That was, of course, until Bewitched began to film in Salem. I, that was crazy. I just read you wrote something in the New York Times Don't about that. I had that? no idea. Yeah. So there is also a statue of Elizabeth Montgomery as there Bewitched. There is. It's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I just like the idea that a fictional witch is able to somehow unearth the non-fictional history. I mean, How I just, did that I, happen? Can you fill us in? Um, Salem is Salem town although it occasionally will try to commercialize the witches or to talk about the witches, never really manages to hit the right tone. And in the 70s, um, for various reasons, the TV sitcom Bewitched decided to film a couple of episodes in Salem. Uh, but in one of those episodes, Samantha, the heroine of Bewitched, travels back to old Salem. And she kind of sets the history straight. She tells the judges that the people whom they have prosecuted were innocent. And um, she's a witch, but these people were not. And then poof, she disappears. Um, and it's a very effective means because it's humorous and it's 
um, very squeaky clean. It's a very effective means of sanitizing the history. And only after that, um, that season of sitcoms was there this sort of commercial embrace of, of witches and finally a memorial to the victims. Well, looking at the legacy of this and having spent so much time digging into it and really the conditions that created it, how does America carry on its witch hunts now? I think we've all noticed that um, extracting a false confession is not altogether difficult. I think uh, anyone can abuse his authority to um, convince someone that he is something he does not believe he is. And um, if you look at terrorism today, we have the same problem in a way. We have this sense that we're being terrorized by an enemy to whom we can't really put a face, Mm. which is not that different from this sense of a a lurking spectral menace in your yard. You don't know if it's a Native American or if it's an invading Frenchman or if it's a spectral, if it's a witch. Um, So I think there's a certain resonance there. What an interesting conversation and a fantastic book. Please do join me in thanking the fabulous Stacey Sherman. Stacey Schiff, author of The Witches, Salem 1692, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Ian Martin. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Taylor Quimby. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music hall production manager is Jana Morris. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. Broadcast sponsor is Heinemann Publishing. You can listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Oh, mm-hmm.